welcome to the Spiritual Awakenings podcast. I'm David Lorimer, co-editor of a new book, Spiritual Awakenings, Scientists and Academics Describe Their Experiences. It's published by the Academy for the Advancement of Post-Materialist Sciences and is available in paperback and Kindle editions. In this series of weekly podcasts, we'll be sharing the 57 original essays together with introductions and epilogue from my co-editor, Professor Marjorie Willicott. We hope you enjoy them. The Power of Words to Awaken by Stafford Betty Read by Martin Redfern When I was a young man just back from Vietnam, I decided to test my Catholic faith by reading Bertrand Russell's Why I Am Not a Christian, to see how it held up. What arguments could this famous atheist produce? What arguments could I counter with? It never seriously occurred to me that he could shake me loose from my convictions, but he did. I was mesmerised as I read along. I felt as if I could hardly breathe or was slogging through a swamp as I kept turning the pages, but I couldn't stop. It was as if I was under the spell of a death wish, and each page sank me deeper into quicksand. But there was also something vaguely exhilarating about it. The utter novelty of it attracted me, like a moth to a flame. I had no idea that my faith was so vulnerable. First he attacked my belief in God. If everything has a cause, as everybody grants, then God must have a cause too. Or if you make an exception for God, then you could just as well make it for the universe. He then looked at the evil in the world. He mentioned the Ku Klux Klan and fascists, and said that if all this was overseen and permitted by an omnipotent God, then God must be a fiend. He next attacked Christ. He labelled Christ's teaching on eternal hell a doctrine of cruelty, and claimed that no one with a proper degree of kindness in his nature could teach it. But for me, the worst offence against right religion was his denial of life after death. He said that our memories and habits are bound up with the structure of the brain, and that if the brain is injured, the injured man is totally changed. And if the brain dies, that's the end of everything. You're dissolved at death. As for the soul, he called it a metaphysical abstraction, and regarded its survival of death a bare possibility, with much evidence against it. He claimed to be unconcerned about its loss, and that a wise man was happiest when he asked nothing of nature it could not supply. He claimed to be at peace with extinction. I felt spiritual nausea as I considered all this. It was so strange and unexpected that it seemed dreamlike, a nightmare. Yet it was real. I had the feeling of being an outsider, a pariah in God's eyes, if there was a God. I lived with a badly battered faith for the next seven years, always searching for the answers that would defeat the reasoning of this famous atheist. In 1975, well along in my new job as a religious studies professor, I came across a new book titled Life After Life, 
that presented scientific evidence of an afterlife. I had never heard of a near-death experience. No one had. I recognised at once that this was a work of historic importance, and my faith in something more took on a vitality denied me since reading Russell. I was impressed by the similarity of the experiences, despite the experiences' drastically different backgrounds, and even more by the ability of some of them to accurately report events that were happening at a distance, in the real world, despite their comatose condition. Their descriptions of looking down at their body and overcoming their fear of death further solidified my conviction that they were different from their physical body, and that therefore they did not have to share its ultimate fate. All the evidence pointed to survival, and with that my feeling about the world we lived in improved overnight. I could now live my life, as William James famously put it, in a strenuous mood. My natural inclination towards metaphysical optimism resurfaced. The world smiled at me. But there was more work to do. I didn't know how to defeat Russell's claim that all our experiences were dependent on the brain, which obviously stopped working at death. In retrospect, it surprises me that the answer escaped me for so long. The answer lay in a different way to conceptualise the relation of the brain to consciousness. It dawned on me, I forget when or exactly how, that our consciousness was not generated by the brain's electrochemical activity, as Russell claimed, but that the brain was the instrument used by the immaterial self until separated by death. In other words, physical matter, the brain especially, is the partner we dance with for as long as we live on a physical planet. The celebrated near-death experimenter Pim van Lommel compared the brain to a television set which converts electromagnetic waves to image and sound. The waves are like consciousness, the TV like the brain. The brain does not produce consciousness, it modulates it. What happens when the brain is damaged or diseased and the individual's mental life is impaired, as in Alzheimer's? When the instrument is damaged, the consciousness isn't impaired, but it cannot function normally, in the same way that the picture on your TV gets fuzzy or scrambled. There's nothing wrong with the electromagnetic waves, only with the TV. And when the brain stops working altogether, the self can't use it, so it moves on into what we call the afterlife, where physical brains are not needed and do not exist. As for the near-death experience, or NDE, it is caused by the temporary separation of conscious self from the brain. This reconceptualization is the only way to make sense of the NDE and other types of paranormal experience, like deathbed visions, mediumistic reports of spiritual worlds, memories of previous lives by little children, and other phenomena that I've devoted the last 15 years of my life to investigating. Materialist scientists and philosophers cannot account for any of this, and usually settle for denying its existence, at great cost to human happiness worldwide. My spiritual awakening changed not only my feeling about our place in the world, 
but the kind of research and writing I've done. In the last eleven years, I've published three non-fiction books and five novels, all owing one way or another to the spiritual awakening that Moody's book brought about. My scholarly reorientation cost me the respect of many of my university colleagues who consider what I do pseudoscience. But that's okay. To live knowing that death opens into a vast and fascinating world is a very desirable trade-off. It feels like a sure bet. Thanks so much for downloading the Spiritual Awakenings podcast. Do join us for the next episode.